Hello and welcome back to Talking Indonesia. I am Tito Ambio from Aramati University, which stands on the unceded land of the Woiwurrung and Wurundjeri people. In this episode of Talking Indonesia, we'll be talking about two things, and I promise you they are related. Um, we will be talking about sand, and we will be talking about global collaborative journalism. Now, before I introduce you to our guests today and how these two things are related, let's talk about sand. Now, um, in a previous episode, two episodes ago in Talking Indonesia, we heard from Dr. Lian Sinclair about the um, extractive uh, industries in Indonesia. Now, you might be more informed about this than I am, but I was surprised to hear from our guests today that sand, you know, that thing that you see on beaches, sand is the second most exploited natural resource in the world after water. Now, that's according to a report from the United Nations in 2019. Now, it was surprising to me, but then it kind of made sense. Well, of course, it made sense because sand is literally everywhere. It's used to create concrete, asphalt, glass. And in fact, if you're listening to this on your device, whatever it is, your electronic device, there's a high likelihood that at least a little bit of that device that you're using used to be sand. It used to live somewhere as as, as sand somewhere. Um, and we as a global society use a lot of sand about 40 to 50 billion, that's with a B, billion metric tons of it every year. And it's not only used to make things like concrete and asphalt, it's also used by countries around the world to expand the amount of land that they have, basically by moving sand from one place to another, either from another country, another place, uh, or from its own borders in reclamation projects. Now, Indonesia is in a unique position as an archipelago where it has a lot of coasts from which it can mine sands from. But there are cases where coastlines or even whole islands disappear, literally disappear, and also disappearing with the stories, the cultures, and the livelihoods of people who used to live on those coastlines, and they disappear forever. In this episode of Talking Indonesia, we'll be hearing from two Indonesian journalists who were a part of a global journalism project that reported on the problems caused by sand mining around the world. This project is called Beneath the Sands. And you can read their stories by looking up Environmental Reporting Collective or go um, and search for Beneath the Sands project. Now, in the first part of this interview, we'll hear about sand mining itself, uh, why it is a problem and how it is a problem in Indonesia as well as in many other parts of the world. And in the second part, we will hear about why this model of global journalism project that our guests today were and are a part of seems to be the only way we can actually tell stories about sand mining and also other environmental problems in the world. Because a lot of these problems are global problems 
And when we are telling stories about these environmental challenges, we can't really remain in this silo model of journalism where a country talks about its own environmental problems when the problems are global in nature. Febriana Firdaus, investigative journalist and managing editor of the Environmental Reporting Collective, and Krishna Pradipta, who is a digital media producer with Tempo Magazine, are our guests today, and both of them were involved in this project called Beneath the Sands. And my first question to Febriana is, what is ERC, or the Environmental Reporting Collective? Thank you, Tito. So ERC is a group of networking journalists and newsroom who dedicated themselves to investigating uh, environmental crimes around the world. And how we started the Beneath of Sand Global Collaboration? Uh, firstly, uh, we had our global convening in June 2022. So this is an annual event where we gather ideas uh, from the audience, consists of journalists, academicians, practitioners, like environmentalists himself. So they will tell us what kind of topic that we should investigate this year. So one of the topic came up was about reclamation. So that was the first idea. But then we follow up by doing a research and we found out that there was a bigger problem than just reclamation. So it was a sand mining business around the globe. So then we came up with the idea to investigate uh, this topic and um, I consulted to the board members and they agreed that this will be our annual global collaboration this year, 2022 to 2023. So that's how it started. Mm. And, you know, which is something that's really interesting for me because, um, you know, as an Indonesian living abroad, one of the stories that we often tell to people, foreigners, when they ask us about Indonesia, is we tell them, right, that Indonesia has 17,000 islands and we have so many islands. In reality, we don't actually know how many islands we have. And from reading your story, we also found out that, yeah, many of these islands have been disappearing since at least 2007. Uh, Krishna, you worked on uh, one of these stories. Can you tell us what's been happening in Indonesia in terms of sand mining and how it's uh, creating um, environmental problems in Indonesia, uh, in Riau, for example? Yeah, so um, in this project, Beneath the Sands, I worked on two stories. The first being the environmental impact story, so the, uh, of sand mining to each of the regions that the industry exists in, and the other one is recognition, um, one of the industries in which uh, the product sand is being uh, used for. So Indonesia is in this really interesting kind of position where we're both, as a coastal island, uh, as a coastal island nation, you know, the archipelago, we're kind of like uh, both a user of sand and also uh, we mine sand for our own benefit. So in our research, we found that like the type of sand that is most commonly used for sand my marine sand, right? So it's sand from coast 
from coasts, from beaches, and stuff like that. Indonesia has those in abundance. That's why a lot of these mining companies source their sand from Indonesia in in places where they don't have the natural resource, like Singapore, um, China. You know, they source it from Indonesia. That that sand trade became so kind of widespread, and it's not only in Riau, but it's in many many other. Uh, coastal islands. There's one case in, I think it was in Sulawesi. There's another in Banten, and that's a domestic product. Uh, we have like an island in called Bengkalis in Riau. And from 1988 to 2004, 30, 40 hectares of land just gets, uh, just, is just gone because of abrasion, right? Yeah, 2004 onwards, that kind of rate where, you know, 30, 40 hectares a year is being consumed it's being doubled. So we're like looking at like a rate of 60, 80 hectares a year of abrasion in the island. So these like, um, these lands are being eaten by the seas, basically. And so where, where are they that, going? When, was, when sand is being uh, mined, uh, basically it's like marine sand is like the sand below the beaches, right? Mm. If you take that out, the foundation of the beach gets shifted. So um the beach itself goes down to fill that hole that you create mm-hmm. at the marine bed and then that eats away at the the island itself so where yeah. are this sand going uh fabriana where what kind of industries uh need the sand uh, i mean it seems like we yeah it's a massive amount of sand that's being tr- uh, transported around the country and as well as around the globe yeah that's correct um, so to understand where the sand is going, we need to uh, understand first the type of the sand. So there are two types of the sand. First is sand consumed by the industry or industrial sand. So imagine that uh, the glasses that you wear now, uh, the earphones, the headphones, the phones, and also the laptop that we are using right now, is actually made from sand. So that's when like the demand of the industrial sands is huge. And uh, the other type of sand is um, sand for the construction. So uh, the sand usually uh, used for uh, a building, for example. So this is where the sand going. But most of the sand uh, consume within the country actually. So like for example, uh, when like the company drags the sand in the Mekong region, it's actually consumed within the region. But even like uh, it's not that far away, maybe in the border between Cambodia and Vietnam, for example, but mostly consumed within the country. Mm. And then, but, uh, and, but with the industrial sense, in some case, it's uh, consumed in another part of country. Like for example, uh, there is another specific luxury sense from Australia, actually. It actually traveled to Abu Dhabi or uh, United um, Arab Emirates. So like for example, Burj Khalifa is actually made from a specific luxury sense from Australia. So wow. it, it depends on the various or type of the sand. Because but, you cannot use uh, desert sand to build this uh, Burj Khalifa or tall building. So you need mm, a specific yeah. sand. 
So obviously sand mining is a huge industry around the world and it is affecting a lot of people. And Beneath the Sands is a project that is global in its perspective. Can you tell us after working on this story, are there stories of people who are affected by sand mining that really affect you, affected you the most? Um, I think one of the stories that really uh, got to me was um, we were at uh, Riau for um, a couple of days. And then one of the uh, story that we were looking at is reclamation. And they source the sand from this island in Rupat. Um, they managed to get the sand mining operation stopped, but uh, these kinds of things have the ability to keep topic, especially if you're a marine sand source, right? Um, because these kinds of things, like you know, you you stop the permit for one company, and then another company would come in. And one of the fishermen um, said something about they're being displaced because the sand mining that was happening off the shore of this island directly affects um, their kind of like fishing areas, right? And these are the fishing areas that have been passed down from their grandfathers, great-grandfathers, all the way down to him. And then he was t telling me about like how he's scared that it will stop with him. So that kind of culture is just being displaced um, all the time. And it's a similar story everywhere in Indonesia. So that was one dude in uh, Riau in Rupa. Similar story happening in Morotai, which is in Sulawesi. Their livelihoods are being threatened, but more importantly, their, the, the culture, their, the, the community with which they have lived in for so long is being threatened, is, is being threatened existentially, right? Mm. Um, we're talking about like people from the Jakarta Bay are legitimately scared that they're going to have to become, you know, wage laborers because if they move out from the, from the bay, where are they going to go? So that's kind of like the thing that's really striking for me, that these, um, these operations are not only kind of like taking away people's livelihoods, because we also, we all uh, see that happening everywhere, but it's also kind of like just annihilating like cultures and kind of like communities and even like 10, 15 years from now, that entire island might be just gone. So that's yeah. kind of like the really striking thing for me. Like physically, traces of these people is being threatened to the point where they would not exist anymore completely, which is just insane to me. Yeah, that is, that is insane, actually, because, you know, in yeah. Australia, we talk a lot about, you know, stolen land. But now we're actually talking about not only stolen land, but disappearing lands as well. Like they, yeah, yeah. they just disappear. They go away. They can't. And it's not that you can get them back, right? Because now it's in Dubai. <laughs> you know, the yeah. sand is <laughs> somewhere yeah. else. And, and they're trying to pull things on you. They're trying to be like, oh, well, the lands are disappearing. So we're, we're just going to reclaim it. And then mm. they're sourcing sand from another place. And then it's yeah. just like a whole host of like kind of adding problems to make more is you know yeah. um you know adding problems to make more problems and then it just becomes like a really like bad cycle yeah, yeah. um febriana um some of the people who are the most affected are women um and i'm quoting this from from one of the stories in a trade that is domin dominated and driven by men 
women often bear the burden of the negative social and environmental impacts from sand mining activities around the world. Can you tell us how? So um, we believe in a principle that women being the second citizen are being marginalized uh, in general, right? And then in ERC, we believe that the story of women is unique. And of course, they have like different experience with the men because of that marginalization. So we want to make sure to give voice to the woman to this story. From Indonesia, there are a group of women in um, Pasar Seluma Coastal in Bengkulu who collect shells to provide nutrition and to provide livelihoods and earn money for their children and family. Um, so they have to work very hard to provide uh, food for their family. And it's already, they also have to take care and uh, the all the work at home where they don't get paid. And then uh, this sand mining uh, company arrive and threatens the habitat of the shells. So it will burden them economically. So that, that's like the two example, how they already already like have the burden and um, marginalized in, in our society, but also the environmental damage will worsen the situation. Mm. So that's why, um, that's why um, we want to make sure that we, again, in our first principle to expose the layer of the impacts um, in the communities. Make sure that the voice of this uh, marginalized case in India be heard and also the woman in Indonesia and in Cambodia, for example, mm. be exposed. The women actually have to defend the men and then they also had to yes. uh, be on the front line um, because they use it as a strategy to fight this mining companies. Why was it represented in comic journalism, especially for the stories of women? Was there what what was the reason behind that? It was actually the idea of the coordinator, Richa Sal. So um we think that we want to make sure, we want to ensure we reach out to the Gen Z. Uh, we talk that uh, by presenting this story in a comic, uh, the Gen Z will uh, read the story. <laughs> So that, that's actually the initial idea. We want to make sure this story not only written in a text because it's like a boring and traditional, but also uh, presents in a comic. But I think like um, it, 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 I think also like it worked out because um, um, most of the story that viral that I worked before is actually because we present it also in a comic. So I think like I agree with Richa at that time. And and then, yeah, so this is like the re- result. Finally, we can present it in a comic. Mm. Now, Krishna, you are an experienced um, data journalist. You've created data yeah. visualization, including, um, yeah, you've been nominated as well for the inaugural Indonesian Data Journalism Awards. Um, how did you apply your visualization skills in Beneath the Sands? And I'm interested as well in why you use uh, visualizations to tell the story about reclamation. Can you tell us about that? Before we start, just a shout out to the 
uh, ERC's uh, visualization team, Richard Shell and Kwakeng uh, Sef, like really good people, really cool people to work with. I learned a lot from them. Uh, approaching it from a data journalism mindset um, really helped the story because um, we were talking about how countries and kind of um, how countries expand and what they use that expansion for and how they expand it. So for me, data visualization is basically making your story more accessible to a large number of people. The mm. publication I work for, Temple, uh, we are really good at in-depth, deep dive investigations. And the kind of trade-off with that is that it's some, you sometimes lose people uh, while you're uh, making the story because it's dense, right? We're talking about like thousands of words um, taking you through, you know, jungles in Riau and stuff like that. Uh, when I started working here, I just become obsessed with kind of like simplifying stories and kind of like uh, making it as approachable and as accessible to a large number of people as possible. And one of the first kind of ways I found out how to do that was to create visualizations, right? Um, you know, if you can visually see how, for instance, you know, deforestation is happening through year on year, like instead of just explaining to them, showing them a bar chart, why not take satellite footage? And th those kinds of experiences uh, happen uh, in Beneath the Sands. Um, we were talking about how, like, uh, how did Singapore grow? So from our investigation, from when we were writing the story, we found out that Singapore is one of like the major sand guzzlers in the world, uh, which is kind of funny, right? Because they're such a small country, but um, they have ex they've actually expanded quite rapidly since um, their independence in the 40s. So, and in doing so, um, they've guzzled a lot of sand. And then after we got that story, we talked to researchers who had uh, investigated it. And then we found that several other countries are doing the same thing, like China, you know, all these places that are expanding their territories little by little through reclamation. And then from that, we kind of said, okay, we have the data set, now we have to visualize it. And then we kind of decided, if you want to see how they grow, we decided the scrolly, scrolly telling format is the way to go, right? Because mm. um, visualization is not only, you know, finding out how you can make a story accessible, but it's also creating experiences. And the same goes with kind of each story in the ERC. Um, I know that Kang, the data lead, the visualizations lead for the ERC, uh, talked to each uh, coordinating journalist and said like, so what kind of experience do you, you want the um, reader to to you know kind of sign while while they were reading your story so mm. with the gender one with reach out it's you know through comics with my one i wanted to, people to see like the growth so it, we decided on that kind of format and each coordinator you know decided on their own formats so yeah journalism has a bit of a has a bit of an image problem at the moment right people are losing trust in journalists um, but at the same time, we are also facing a huge problem with climate change, with you know, environment around the world. And now that you've worked on this project, how do you think this model of global collaborative journalism can help challenge um, or it can help address the challenges facing journalism today 
I think it's kind of the future for me. I've always felt like um, journalism is siloed to each of the countries that they exist in. Um, we are kind of in danger of becoming our own kind of echo chambers. It's tricky to collaborate on other topics because, you know, you have politics in Indonesia might not be the same in Australia, right? For instance, like the culture, there's differences in culture, there's differences in mindsets and all that jazz. But we, the, the great thing about what ERC is doing is that we all live in the same earth, right? We have the same environment. We know trees are trees in, in Jakarta as is in Sydney and Melbourne, right? So I think uh, this model of journalism is kind of the future because right now, um, climate change is kind of forcing us to kind of be interconnected with and be aware of our own supply chains. The thing is, like, Tempo has done so many stories on the effects of, you know, um, industries, extractive industries, right? Whether it be wood, whether it be oil, uh, fish, sand. And we always do like these really good in-depth stories, but we also, we always be like, we're, we're always like, um, and then it's get exported to, you know, Europe or America or Australia. And then mm. it ends there, right? The yeah. impact is isolated, but with global uh, collaborative journalism, we can track these kinds of uh, products going out. We can actually be like, uh, ident- we can actually identify um, palm oil going from uh, Sumatra all the way to Italy, right? Creating mm-hmm. biofuel in Italy. We tracked with the ERC, one of the fir- very first projects together was we tracked the sale of pangolins from Indonesia. They're being captured in Indonesia and then they're being processed in China as traditional medicine. So we can track those supply chains to create bigger impacts with more people going on board. Um, you know, it affects a lot of different people. Yeah, Fabriana, do you want to add anything to that? Yes, um, I just want to tell uh, from my experience. Um, so before joining the ERC, I see this phenomenon of the media compete to each other, especially the mainstream media in the Western country. So they tend to publish their open work because they are like they have their reporter around the globe. But they forget that uh, it only um, make us uh, as a tool as of the capital because we want to compete each other. We want to break the first news. We want to be exclusive. But we forget the main principle of journalism to be a watchdog. So as uh, Krishna said that we cannot uh, solve this problem of the climate change if we don't work together, for example, to report the story of the deforestation in Brazil is actually impacted the heat wave in uh, Southeast Asia right now. So mm. that's why we need a collaborative journalist. But it is hard to introduce, to be honest, uh, this type of global collaborations to the established mainstream media in the Western because they still uh, hesitate uh, to work with the local media, like for example, in Asia, they feel like they have like a higher standard of journalism. So this is what we want to solve 
what we want to achieve in uh, ERC or like another uh, project of the global collaboration, we want to build the standard together. Let's just learn from each other. Let's just like lower our ego uh, to compete, to be the first. It, 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 especially in a time like this, when everyone affected by the climate change, climate change is real. It's getting hotter in my place, for example. <laughs> but it's not time to like um, want to be the echo chamber, as Karina says, in the UK, for example, in the USA or in Australia, it's it's not the time anymore. So let's just go back to the first principle of journalism to be watchdog. So we can be a watchdog together because all the problem in this world is intertwined. So let's go back to there and just support global collaboration. So if mm. you feel like a newsroom around the world, if you if you editor or like whatever chief editor listen to this podcast, especially in Australia. If you feel that uh, you cannot uh, make a bigger impact, um, you need to rethink about to join our global collaboration because we can make a bigger impact if we can work together and stop being like, a, um, being like a shellfish or whatever, like self-centered with, our goal to be the best in your country. You know, it's 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 not it's not the future of journalism. I think the future of journalism, I think, is a global collaboration. Mm. Now, finally, I want to ask both of you: Do you have advice to journalists and and academics um, who are interested in working on a global collaborative project like this? Uh, maybe Krishna, if if you want to start first, what would your advice be as a journalist? Just start. Just uh, a lot of journalists that I come across are very shy individuals, despite the fact that their job is involves talking to people. You know, um, they they're usually very reticent in joining kind of organizations like this and talking to like people um, from you know outside of uh, their kind of work culture, uh, their their media. You know. And they're even more reticent in talking to like, you know, international journalists. I would say to journalists who are kind of interested in kind of collaborating like this to just find organizations like the ERC and just, you know, give it, give them a line. Just contact them and be like, hey, I, I'm super interested in the work that you guys do, and, you know, stuff like that. Like, they won't, they, they're not going to buy it, you know. For um, academics, um, the work that they're already doing is really, really helpful for journalists like us. I would say to just keep tracking along, you know, they are very important. Like I know that, you know, making a journal about the year on year kind of abrasions in Southern Sumatra might not be, um, you know, saving the world on its own, but together with all the scientists definitely makes an impact. And we definitely need their work to kind of do the things that we're doing right now. So yeah. Mm. Fabriana, what would your advice be? Um, if Prisna said about uh, most of journalists are like people he met shy. So I feel like most of the people that I met, they asked me like, how, how did you uh, end up here? Or um, how did you make it? 
I think like most of these journalists are overthinking. First, I think they are overthinking about um, do I have like enough skill? Uh, but oh. I cannot speak English well, for example. But I cannot write in English. That is actually not like the thing that will uh determines or like uh, whether you are going to be um meeting the standard you can join a global collaboration the first thing that you have to do is change your mindset i also say this to krishna very often in your mindset uh so most of the people think that if you're not an english native speaker you cannot join a global collaboration that's totally wrong um if you're you don't graduate from the uh, Western University, you cannot join. If you have no experience writing in an international publication, you cannot join because you have no experience. No, no, no. If you really have a great idea or like great topic, just pitch that topic to like one of the editor and let's see what happened. So I think that that is like, a, um, that is like the tips for me as long as you have the skill and dedication and uh, a willing to hard work I think you can achieve achieve it someday beautiful well thank you very much uh, Fabriana Firdaus uh, managing director of ERC and Krishna Pradipta from Tempo magazine thank you very much both thank you